Let's begin in Psalm 21. Actually, you know, on Sunday, let's draw back a moment. We looked at Psalm 20. And truly, Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 are a pairing together. Psalm 20 is an invocation for victory. You may recall this if you were here Sunday. That's the song of the people praying for their king, encouraging their king, wanting the king to be built up on the eve of battle, prior to going into war. Psalm 21 is not the invocation, it's the celebration of victory. Prayer for victory and then a praise of victory after the fact. And both psalms center in on the heart of the king. Now there are three ways you can look at these psalms. You can look at them historically. David wrote them, we know that. You can think about the kings of Israel, be it David or Solomon or any of the kings on down the line, and the people gathering and and singing Psalm 20 before the battle and then praising God with Psalm 21 after the battle. Thinking about it historically, that's one way to look at it. Secondly is you can look at it prophetically. Many of the psalms are deeply entrenched in and enriched by messianic perspective. That is, speaking of the great king Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the victory to come by Jesus. And so we have a great example in Psalm 20 and 21 to praise Jesus for the victory that He is going to bring, our great King of Kings. To praise Him before the victory, knowing that we're going to praise Him after the victory. So there's an historical view, there's a prophetic view, there's also a personal view, and we began to talk about this on Sunday, that we are kings. We're receiving a kingdom. Hebrews 12, 28. We are called to be kings. Revelation 1, 6. Revelation 5, 10. Revelation 20, verse 6. Called, now some of your Bibles will say called to be a kingdom, but that word kingdom indicates not territory, but authority. So we have a royal kingly authority. We are called a royal priesthood by Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9. Psalm 8, 5 tells us we've been crowned with glory and majesty. Psalm 16, verse 3 tells us we're the majestic ones in the earth by the blessing of God our Father. So this concept of of being royalty, of being kings, I think it's something we fall short of so often as believers in Christ. Focusing on the sin and and, and on the, the testimony of where I've been and where I came from and the mess I've made of my life. Well, you know, you bring that to God. You confess it to Him. But we need to continue on in our royalty. We need to be willing to and able to embrace the authority that we have in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, we're going to wallow in the places of the past rather than rejoicing in the present and in the future. We are called to be royalty. And so I think this is key, absolutely key, to living the royal life in Christ Jesus. What's key? Well, Psalm 20, verse 4, in the people's prayer for the king, May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. And if you go on down to Psalm 21, verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad. And in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. Does that not speak of you and me? That we are glad in his strength and in, his, in our salvation we rejoice. Verse 2, you have given him his heart's desire and you have not withheld the request of his lips. So in Psalm 20, they're praying, may he grant you your heart's desire. And in Psalm 21, we're told... You have given Him His heart's desire, and that's the key, I believe, to a royal life in Christ Jesus. Because the heart that delights in the Lord is the heart that desires His will. 
Psalm 37 verse 4 tells us, Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Now this is huge. Because the idea of delighting in the Lord often is an afterthought for us. As we talked about on Sunday, many times when we come to the Father in prayer, we're not thinking in terms of delight. We're thinking in terms of our laundry list. We're thinking in terms of our needs. In fact, we start with desire. David says, don't start with desire. Start with delight. Because the more you and I delight ourselves in the Lord, the more our desires will align themselves with His desires. We come to Him delighting in Him, and our desires then will begin to line up correctly. Because delight changes desire. And the Lord would rule the desires of our hearts. There is nothing better than to have the desire of your heart in alignment with the Father. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. The Lord said this, speaking to Israel. He said, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is a covenant promise. Not to the old law, but to the new law. The new covenant that God promises, and pay attention to this, He promises the new covenant to Israel. To the house of Israel, very clearly, to the house of Judah. He says, this is the covenant I promise. I'm going to write my law on your hearts. This is a different thing than the old law. That, by the way, that new covenant is the one we have been grafted into. It's a royal covenant, written on the tablet of the heart. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, You are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone like the old law was, which is breakable and unkeepable, but on tablets of human hearts which is life-changing. It's the new joyful resonance of the heart, royally captivated by Christ. Paul said in Philippians 2.13, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so, delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll bring the desires of your heart. And by the way, those desires will bring about a good pleasure. Look at verse 3. For you meet Him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold... On his head. We will have that. A crown. Each and every one of us, followers of Jesus Christ, saints who, as we reign, we will have crowns. The Bible talks about five of them, by the way, five unique crowns. I'll I'll just throw out the verses to you. You can jot these down and look them up later. But these are the five crowns the Bible lists out for us the crown of righteousness, Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 7 and 8. Crown of righteousness. The crown of life is the second one. James talks about that in James chapter 1, verse 12. The crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 4. And that's a specific crown for those who would shepherd, for those who lead others to faith in Jesus. The crown of glory. Number 4, the crown of the soul winner, 1 Thessalonians 2.19. That's a great crown, by the way. It's not really a crown of gold as much as it is a crown of people. As Paul said, who is our crown if it's not you? And I, I imagine you know, being there in heaven and to be surrounded by those people that you led to the Lord. Those come running up to you to thank you for being the one who led them to Jesus Christ. What a great crown that will be. And number five is the crown of the martyr, Revelation 2.10, that I believe is a crown you only get for dying for Jesus. 
crown of righteousness, of life, of glory, of the soul winner, of the martyr. You can look those up. I had a lot more on that, but there's so much more to get to tonight. I just wanted to throw that out to you. But you want to be sure when you get there that you have a crown. Not because you look so good in hats, but because you're going to want to have something to offer in worship. We're told in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. The bigger the crown, the better the casting. The more crowns you have, the better the worship. And so it's a good thing to pursue these crowns of gold. Verse 4, He asked life of you. You gave it to Him. Length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon Him. What is the glory of kings? It's the salvation of the great King. Our glory, your glory and mine as royalty is our salvation. Paul says in Colossians 3.4, When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Now, this glory may seem a hidden thing right now. I've shared many times, when we look in the mirror, we don't necessarily see glory until after we've done a little work. But even then, it's, I don't know, it's more and more shoddy for me every day that goes by, no matter what I try to do. But a day is coming when all who trust in the Lord for life will be glorified. With a great victory. 1 Corinthians 15.52 tells us, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. By the way, that word how His glory is great through your salvation, the word salvation is also victory. Because our salvation is our victory. Our victory is our salvation in Christ Jesus. Let me just point out, I've shared this before, but there are different camps theologically on this. There are those who say the entire purpose of God in this world is the salvation of man, and I don't believe that's the case. I believe the salvation of man is leading to something greater, which is the glorification of God. That God's entire purpose in this world is bringing glory to Himself. Now, if that was you, if that was me, that would sound a little heady, a little arrogant. You know, glorifying ourselves, but this is God, to whom is due, is worth all glory, all power, all praise. So the primary focus, the primary purpose of the Lord is His glory. Our salvation simply honors that, brings that. Verse 6. For you make Him most blessed forever. You make Him joyful with gladness in your presence, which is... A description of what's in store. What's waiting for us. Joy in the presence of the Lord. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. What is it that makes a man, a woman in Christ Jesus unshakable? It's his grace. His loving kindness. I point out again that Hebrew word, hesed, which means loving kindness or mercy. Now, this is significant in our lives. Because the tendency in life, people may try to knock you down. They may try to call up or point out your faults, your shortcomings, your flaws. 
But man, once you realize that you've been saved by grace, point out all you want. It doesn't make any difference. Show me where I'm flawed. You know, highlight my foibles. I mean, I had foibles. Apparently I do. (laughs) Highlight them. Show me. It doesn't matter. I'm a child of grace. I'm already saved. And nothing that anyone can say to me or do against me can stop that. I'm a child of grace by Jesus Christ and this not of myself. And that produces a faith that's unshakable. Say whatever you want. I know who I belong to and I know I am saved by His grace. Man, what can shake you down? Someone can go after you, pointing out his faults, foibles, failures, but He's chosen to forgive. Once you have the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the rest has no effect. Verse 8. This is interesting. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. I don't know if I want to know that. (laughs) But it's true. There's a reality here. A deep and important spiritual reality as you walk in Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Why did Cain kill Abel? There's one reason. 1 John 3.12 tells us Cain was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's why Cain killed Abel. It wasn't jealousy, gang. It was the fact that in his darkness, his brother's brightness highlighted his darkness and he hated how it made him feel. Why is it that people would set themselves against you, especially once they recognize that you're a believer in Jesus Christ? It's because your brightness highlights the darkness in their lives. You know, the Bible says, to some were the smell of victory, to others the smell of death. Because simply by following Jesus... You might not stand out on a street corner on a soapbox and preach. You might not do anything that that is just overt. But simply by living a life of integrity, walking in the righteousness that God gives you, you will make people walking in darkness uncomfortable. And they will set themselves against you for that reason. Do not be surprised, brethren, John writes, if the world hates you. And it's hard, but it's true. Stand with Jesus and your enemies will emerge. Align yourself with Christ and it will begin to be seen who is against you. I don't want to know that, but I begin to discover it as I walk in Jesus. And Jesus said in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. So at least we know why. Tragically, Israel does not know why. You've been watching this week? You know what's going on over there? You know how right now Israel, once again, is at the bottom of the barrel. The world just tagging Israel and saying, Israel is the aggressor. Israel's horrible. Look at what Israel has done. Despite the fact that what was on the flotilla of boats coming toward Israel included terrorists, and that is just starting to come out, included people with stun grenades and pipes and knives waiting for the Israelis to board so that they could attack them. Forget about all that. Forget about the fact that the flotilla, it involved, it engaged a group called the IHH, which is a Muslim humanitarian and aid society that is just a mask for a terrorist organization, or at least a supporter of terrorist organizations in Somalia, 
in Hamas. I mean, let's ignore all that. Israel's just an aggressive, mean state. I wonder sometimes, what would it be like to live in Israel, to be Jewish, and to know that the world was against me? And to sit there and go, why? What have I done? What is so awful, so evil, so wicked, so terrible about being Jewish? Well, there is an enemy that has set himself against all things connected to God. Who wants to undermine the very promises of God that he gave toward Israel. I won't continue to go off with Israel here, but but to just point out, at least we know why the world hates us. Because they hated Jesus first. Israel will come to know, will ultimately recognize that. When they accept their Messiah, they will come to see, oh, that's why throughout history we were the one people group that was most maligned. Because we're the people of God. Jesus says, if they hate you, don't forget this, they hated me first. No one wants to be hated, but righteousness always enrages wickedness. But we have nothing to fear, right? You walk in Jesus. You have the strength of Christ around you. Even when those who hate rise up against you, 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul wrote, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And shortly after Paul wrote that, he was beheaded. And the Lord carried him safely home. Verse 9. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will devour them. That's big. And that's fiery oven, wrath, fire of God that will swallow people up. What is that describing? Nothing but hell itself. A description, the fiery oven of the reality of hell. I believe there's a literal hell. Absolutely, I believe Scripture is clear about it. If you read Scripture and take it at face value, you know what the Bible says. What Jesus says, declaring and acknowledging there is a hell. And people will say, well, I don't believe there really is a hell. And I say, if you don't believe it now, you'll, you will believe it later. And I don't want them to believe it later, other than believing it from the place of security in Jesus Christ. But how does this apply to me personally? I mean, look at this. He's talking about, your hand will find out your enemies, you'll make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger, the Lord will swallow them up. Verse 10, their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. Yes, I mean, it sounds great. It's the kind of ending I love in a good vengeance movie. You know, good is going to destroy bad. But I'm a believer in Jesus and I know what He says about loving my enemies and actually turning the other cheek and caring for those who are against me. How do I, how do I sort this out personally? Listen again to verse 10. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. Offspring is the word literally fruit. Descendants is seed. Read it that way. Their fruit you will destroy from the earth. Their descendants or their seed from among the sons of men. I believe this is part of the royal calling. To destroy the fruit and the seeds of wickedness. To destroy the fruit from among the world of men. To destroy the seeds of wickedness by the way we live. Not through arms or violence, but through self-sacrifice and love. To be purposeful in desiring to take out 
wickedness wherever it may be found. We seek to destroy the fruit and the seed of wickedness in the world by the sheer presence of the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ within us. Many times I've said over the years we've been here, this church needs to be on North Whidbey Island if for no other reason than to push back against darkness. We need more churches to push back, more people praying, more people worshiping, more light that drives out darkness. We've been asked several times, you know, what's going on with the building? What's going on with the property? What, what's happening over on Troxel? How come we're still in the barn? And we have, have we broken ground? What's going on? We're on hold. We've been on hold for a long time, waiting for Island County to get back to us. Why is that? Because Island County is under pressure from an environmental action group that does not want our church to build on that property. It doesn't matter that we own the property. You know, God does. It doesn't matter that it's not used for farming or wetlands or agriculture. It's, it's our property. You know, there was a day in America where when you bought property, it was yours to do with as you please. That day has passed. And so the pressure is coming from this Environmental Action Group, and I, I'm not going to name them. I may have named them before, and I probably shouldn't have, but you know, I'm just not going to. If you want to find out, see me afterwards. <laughs> but here's the deal. It just makes it all the more clear to me. There are groups who, maybe not even realizing why, do not want this church here. And they are raising a ruckus to keep it from happening. Are you worried about it, Rick? Not at all. It's not my problem. It's God's problem. If He wants this church to be here, it's going to be here. If He wants us to build on Troxel Road, we're going to build. And there's no amount of outcries from the enemy that can stop it. But I'll tell you something. This area needs the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a dark area. And so our very purpose in being here is to destroy the fruit of wickedness. To uproot the seeds of wickedness on this island. On Fidalgo Island. In this area. To live our lives in such a way that wickedness scurries away, flees from the light of what Jesus is doing. That is a huge royal calling. And we are called to that. Verse 11, Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. For you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. (laughs) I told you, I think on Sunday, that I'm watching, Sean and I are watching through the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So that takes on a different meaning for me. You will aim with your bowstring at their faces. You know, I mean, it's, it's very strong language there. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. And by the way, verses 11, 12, 13 are absolutely messianic in their intention, in the language, in the promise, the guarantee of victory. Gain our royal calling to receive a kingdom is not just a future thing. Oh, it is future. And a literal, actual kingdom is coming in which we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ as the book of Revelation clearly tells us. But our royal calling to the kingdom is also now. Our following after Jesus Christ is now and later. And our confidence to live for Christ now is huge because we know the outcome. It's a sure thing. Success, victory, it's singing Psalm 20, knowing we're going to sing Psalm 21. 
It's praising God before the battle, knowing the battle has already been won. And we will praise Him after that. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So our confidence is in complete certainty of the victory we will have in Messiah. But people will ask, and Christians have asked me, but how do we really know? I mean, that sounds great. You know, and we can get charged up in a Bible study about our coming victory in the Lord, but then we get out in the world and things get a little shaky. You know, and things get a little disconcerting. And I'm not, where does this kind of confidence come from? I want you to hold that thought. Where does our confidence really come from? We'll come back to that question. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is the most graphic, brutal, literal description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross there at Golgotha in all of Scripture. More graphic is this description than what is given in any of the four Gospels. For David, these are poetic words, descriptive metaphors of his own times of suffering, but as you read through, they are too big. And you realize that these words, this psalm, became realized and actualized in their fulfillment in Jesus' suffering on the cross. If you want to head this psalm anything, this is the psalm of the cross. Of all the psalms, the other psalms will indicate, will point to the crucifixion. This one is absolutely, unequivocally about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Line by line, let's walk it through. Psalm 22 is for the choir director upon Aeshelet Hashshahar. Aeshelet Hashshahar. What does that mean? It means the hind of the morning. This is spoken on the hind of the morning, or the deer of the morning, or the break of day. Matthew 27, verse 45, tells us, from the sixth hour, at 6 a.m., darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour, 9 a.m. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First line of the psalm. When did Jesus cry the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the hind of the morning. And that is where this psalm begins, where it's written, where it is cried from there in the morning, and it was in the morning hours that Jesus cried the very first line of this psalm. It is the most heart-stopping, gut-wrenching, plaintive cry ever uttered from the mouth of man. Because it came from the mouth of one who never did a single thing wrong. It emitted from a son who was absolutely innocent, completely pure. One in whom God was well pleased, the only beloved son of the Father. And on the hind of the morning, again, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew details this as we just read. Mark 15, verse 34. Both Matthew and Mark attribute these words to Jesus hanging there on the cross. But why did He speak them? Why did Jesus choose that one-line phrase to pull out of Psalm 22 and declare there from the cross at Calvary, as written by David, two things to note. First off, Jesus was calling our attention to this psalm. This is what rabbis would do. Now in Jesus' day, and, uh, and even after, and definitely before, the rabbinical practice was to 
to quote the first line of a passage so that his students would know where he was going to teach from. They didn't have chapters and verses like we do where we can just say Psalm 22, verse 1. So rather than that, the rabbi would say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the student, well-versed, would know, Okay, that's, that's over here. That's what we would call Psalm 22. That's the psalm of the suffering, the cry of anguish. The psalm, Ayeshulath Hash Shahar. And they would go directly to it. Rabbi Jesus had the presence of mind nailed to the cross, hanging up above the people, mocking Him, spitting at Him. He had the presence of mind to draw us to this prophetic word that He Himself had given to David a thousand years before. What's He saying? Go to Psalm 22. I want you to go to Psalm... When you hear me speak these words, I want your hearts to go here. I want you to think about this, to process this. Why? So that no one could miss what was really going on. So that no one would miss this biblical reference to His crucifixion. The Persians, by the way, devised crucifixion originally. Romans picked up on that later. But Psalm 22, which details the brutal death sentence impeccably, was written 800 years before crucifixion was even a known thing, before it was invented. David will use phrases like, they pierced my hands and my feet. A bizarre thing to say. Really not a whole lot of basis in reality in David's day, but in Jesus' day, people knew exactly what was meant. Jesus was calling attention to the psalm The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And so if Jesus' followers had had the the ability to hear over their grief, they would have understood Jesus was saying, this was intended. This was planned out a thousand years ago. Truly, you know and I know, this was planned out from the foundation of the earth. Revelation 13 verse 8, that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The plan was at the beginning. The plan was set in motion prior to Even the first sin of man. The plan that would rescue man through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And Rabbi Jesus is saying, look, look to Psalm 22. Think about this. As He cries this out, go back there and read this through and you will know that this is not an accident. This is on purpose. And by the way, this is one reason why I'm confident in the complete victory of Messiah. Because God has already proven Himself time and time and time again. This is what's going to happen, He says, and we watch it happen. Well, guess what else God says is going to happen? Messiah will have complete reign. I trust Him. I believe He's going to follow through because He always has. But it's more than a prophetic proof text as we recently discussed because not only was Jesus calling attention to this psalm, Jesus was crying alone in this psalm. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? You know, if you look through the prayers of Jesus, this is the only time where Jesus addresses the Lord as my God rather than my Father. It's the only time. Every other time He comes before the Lord, it's Father. 
And here it's, my God, why? The relationship is already splitting. It's severed at this point. And Jesus crying out recognizes this. In the darkness there, at the height of mourning, Jesus entered into a solitude like no other time before or after in all eternity and like no other person ever would. Complete and absolute separation from the Lord. By the way, that separation, well, it will be felt by anyone who dies without faith in Jesus Christ. That separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. That's an interesting verse. I cry by day and you don't answer. By night, but have no rest. And at this time when Jesus was crying out this very thing, what was happening? It was day and night. Darkness was across the land. It looked and felt like night, even though He was crying it on the hind of the morning. As darkness has shrouded the whole land, Psalm 18.11 says, He made darkness His secret place. His pavilion round about Him were dark waters and thick clouds of the sky. And darkness fell. The day that was night, as Jesus cried out. By the way, part of the reason for the darkness of that hour may have been to cover some of the shame of the cross. Some of the brutality, some of the unspeakable cruelty of the crucifixion. So bad, it's almost as though the Father was saying, I'm turning off the light because this is too awful to be seen in the full light of day. What they're doing to my son. Now watch this. Jesus cries out, I'm forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But, he says, I know why. Verse 3. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. That's why there was the awful separation. That's why Jesus was forsaken. And we get this wonderful prophetic insight here, recognizing that even as Jesus cried out, Why have you forsaken me? He knew the answer. Because God is holy. Because God cannot abide sinfulness. Because Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, had become sin on the cross. Verse 4, In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. He's saying the Lord always came through for the forefathers. God always rescued. God always delivered. But verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. Jesus says, I'm in a place worse than any of the forefathers have ever been. I'm a worm. You Bible students know this word worm. It's toloth. In the Hebrew, it means one of two things. It either means worm or it means scarlet. The reddish scarlet color. And there's a reason for that. Two reasons, really. Back in the day, it was a natural dye. They would take the toloth worm, crush them up, and use the ground-up reddish-scarlet pulp as dye in clothing, specifically for the robes of the high priest or robes of royalty. It was the only way to get that scarlet color was to crush this, this worm and use it as a natural dye. But what's more intriguing about the Toloth worm is its natural death. It's an intriguing natural explanation for what happens. For you, you know, if, if you've heard this or studied this before, that the Toloth worm would, when it was time to give birth, 
to plant its eggs would crawl up onto a branch and plant the eggs literally right under its body and stay there over the eggs protecting them. And when the larvae would hatch out of those eggs, they ate their way through the mother as their first form of sustenance in life. Born there and eating their way through that which gives them life. And then as they passed on and scurried out to be little tolots wherever they went, the mother died. Obviously the body there, that red pulp would be left on the branch until it began to dry in the heat of the sun. And when it dried, it turned snowy white and would flake off. It's an amazing picture. Isaiah said in Isaiah 1.18, the Lord said, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, tolot, they shall be white as snow. I am a worm, Jesus. I'm, I'm tolot. That's me. That's what's going on here. Amazing picture that He who gives you and me rebirth, gives us new life. How do we get that new life? Well, He, he births us. We are born again. Then what do we do? Eat His flesh and drink His blood. That's our true sustenance. Trusting in Him completely. And He dies for us, sacrificing Himself that our sins might be as white as snow. An incredible picture. And all who see me, Jesus says, and we begin to, get, begin to get even more specific here, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, because He delights in Him. Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 35, the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at Him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And it's uncanny. This is what David wrote you know, a millennium earlier. He didn't have Luke's Gospel to refer to when David wrote this psalm. He couldn't pop in the DVD of the Passion you know, to see what this was about, to, to write a song about this. No, he had far better. He had the Spirit of the living God speaking truth into him, giving utterance to these things. Mark 15.31 tells us the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Rescue yourself! Save yourself! And you know, he could have. He had all the power of all the angels. He said at one point, I could, I could call down 12 legions of angels if I wanted to, Peter. As he's telling Peter in the garden, put your sword away, you little moron. Okay, Jesus wouldn't have said that, but I did. Put it away. I can call for aid. I can call for rescue at any moment. And I absolutely believe at any moment on the cross, if Christ had said, enough is enough, send help, he would have been immediately saved. But he refused, and he hung there, abused, scorned, mocked, and silent, giving no answer to all their derision, because if he saved himself, he would not have saved you. Verse 9, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts, interesting, this begs kind of an old question about Jesus. When did Jesus know who He was? Well, there are those who say, well, I would say 30, you know, 
when the Spirit came upon him in his baptism, the light bulb went on, he realized he was Messiah, and off he went on his messianic, you know, teaching and healing. Well, whoever would say that didn't read Luke chapter 2, because we know when he was 12, his parents found him back at the temple. You remember what Jesus said? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He knew as a 12 year old. Well, as far as Psalm 22 is concerned, he knew before that. He knew when he was nursing at his mother's breast, he knew who he was. You formed me from that point forward, he's saying. But it goes back even further. Verse 10. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. From that place. He knew. By the way, the Hebrew word for birth there, womb, the KGB correctly translates this verse this way. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. I knew you then. Somehow, I don't know how, I'm not smart enough to figure some of these things out, somehow Jesus always knew exactly who He was. He never didn't know. He never questioned. There was never a time where Jesus Christ Messiah said, boy, you know, I just was playing with my friends today and we were making pigeons, you know, out of mud. And when mine flew away, I thought, perhaps. Jesus knew. He knew. Verse 11, He cries, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. And we get some insight into something Jesus saw that nobody else saw. Strong bulls of Bashan. What is this reference? What does this mean? Before David's day, in the region of Gilead, there in Israel, the bulls of Bashan were a... Some think a mythical creature, or some think a creature that was given mythical you know, uh, description. But apparently, according to the Canaanites and Canaanite lore, there were these bulls, these bulls of Bashan, that would pack together and literally go on the attack against other animals. They would circle around their prey and they would gore their prey with their horns. And then they would gather in to eat whatever they killed. Now you might say, eat? I thought bulls were, you know, vegetarians. Herbivores. Not carnivores. Well, that's part of the issue here. The Canaanites believed it. And the Canaanites worshipped these bulls of Bashan as gods. Jesus says, the bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. What are you saying, Lord? What's He alluding to? He's alluding to something supernatural that was happening at the cross. He wasn't just surrounded by hateful man. He was surrounded by the hateful demonic. And He knew it. And He saw what nobody else could see. I am surrounded by something unnatural, attacking and goring me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice and or worship, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I don't want you to become sharers in demons. Paul points out, there's no such thing as other gods, but there are demons. There are demon, demons and demonic presence that would pose as gods, small g, And if you look back across the history of paganism in the world, all of the pagan gods are nothing less than demons posing. And Jesus says, I'm surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. 
And understanding that was a reference to a demonic pagan god of Canaanite worship, you see that Jesus was seeing more than what could be seen. And to cap this, verse 13, he says, They opened wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. And what is the roaring lion of Scripture but Satan himself? So these enemies, these demons, these these agents of Satan are gathering around the cross as well. I see this. He's fully aware. This is incredible to me. Jesus fully aware of the physical abuse and the spiritual mockery taking place at Calvary, but it gets more specific. Verse 14. He says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint and crucifixion dislocates both shoulders and hips. For David to say, my bones are out of joint... What's he referring to? Well, David's trying to give a picture of personal pain and struggle and heartache and difficulty. But these words are too big for David. Too big for the reality that was going on in his life. These words describe one hanging from a cross. He says, My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. And truly, medically speaking, that's probably how Jesus died, was a ruptured heart. His heart exploded within him. Well, how do you know that? John 19.34 says, One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out and that is indicative of a heart that has literally burst. Blood and water flowing out of a wound. John picks up on this marvelously and writes in 1 John 5, verse 6, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with water and with the blood. This was the cause of the death of Jesus on the cross, physically speaking. But amazingly, blood and water are not only the fluids of Jesus' death, they are the fluids of birth. It's by blood and water that a child is birthed, is born. And John goes on in 1 John 5-7 to say, there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. These three are in agreement. What does he mean? Spirit, water, and blood. He's talking about being born again. Spiritual rebirth. Born of Jesus, who died with the flow of the water and the blood. John ties our spiritual birth to Jesus' actual death. I I like this. I just heard this this week. We are a bride from His side. A bride from His side. And that's kind of like the first Adam. Remember, his bride was taken from his side. The rib taken from Adam. Eve was then made. Oh, come on. Eve was made from a rib. How could anybody do that? You know, some of the questions that people ask, God can take dust and turn it into a man. How can God make woman out of a rib? I'm thinking He probably has the capability. You know, God can make something out of nothing. A rib actually puts Him quite a ways down the road to getting the job done. Eve was the bride from Adam's side, and yet we are the bride from the side of Christ, born of water and the Spirit. The blood, the water, the Spirit, these three testify. Amazing. Verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Remember Jesus crying out saying, I thirst. I thirst. The water of life thirsts. The creator of the streams, the mountain lakes. 
the water of life cries out, I thirst. Verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Who did? Who pierced his hands and his feet? The dogs. Dogs was a very specific reference in Jesus' day to Gentiles. And for those who would claim that the Jews were Christ killers, oh, don't get me wrong, they were there. The Jewish leadership rejected Jesus as Messiah outright. But it wasn't a Jewish plot only. It wasn't a Jewish attack only. It was Jews and Gentiles. It was both people groups in the world. As the Romans pierced the hands and the feet, the band of dogs, those Gentiles, surrounded him and pierced him. The Gospel writers simply say Jesus was crucified. That's all they say. They don't detail the nails. They don't detail that. They, they detail the crown of thorns. They tell that there was a scourging that happened in the beatings. They don't talk about it exactly. They just say, and they crucified Him. And that's, that's the extent of it. With the exception of John, actually Thomas, in the book of John, who said in John 20:25, 20, Unless I see in His hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into His side, I will not believe. But I'll tell you what, we hit verse 16, and I read, they pierced my hands and my feet, and I have to ask, how specific must this prophecy be for someone to recognize the supernatural power of the Scriptures? How much more, how much more detailed? You know, when someone says, I just wish God would be more clear about His existence. Read it. Take a look. I am the Lord and there is no other declaring from the beginning the things that will happen at the end. Declaring from the ancient times what's going to happen. You can't see this? It's astounding. I can count all my bones. Verse 17. They look. They stare at me. And I think there are two implications of this verse. Not only were his bones visible, because of the scourging that would have ripped the meat off of his back. You would have seen bones sticking out. You would have seen the the position that he was in. But there's an important statement here. I can count all my bones. In other words, the bones of Jesus were accounted for. Every one of them. What do you mean? They weren't broken. Not a single one. John 19.32 says the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And this ties Jesus, connects him to the Passover lamb. You were not to break the bones of the Passover lamb. And Jesus on Passover at His crucifixion, not a single bone of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was broken. Why? Why were the bones not supposed to be broken? What's the deal with that? You know, was God just setting up a prophetic picture for later on? Partially. But I think there's something else here. You see, in in our bodies physiologically, bone marrow is where blood is produced. It's the production factor and it's as though the father is saying the bones will not be broken because the blood will always continue to flow 
Because the blood will wash continually. Because the blood will be produced for you on an ongoing basis. The absolute covering of His grace. As Paul said in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. As if the Lord is saying, in my Passover lamb, His blood is sufficient. It will not stop covering your sin, washing you clean. You can't get dirty again when you're under the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Another amazing verse. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew 27.35 When they crucified Him, they divided up His garments among themselves by casting lots. Astounding. You almost think, did the Romans read this? Did they realize how completely they were playing into the prophecy already declared by David? Verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. This is the psalm of the cross. But I love that the Lord by His Spirit does not leave us at the foot of the cross in this psalm. No, He takes us to the stoop of the empty tomb. Verse 22. But, He says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. The Hebrew writer grabs this verse and says, this is all about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. He says, this was Jesus speaking these words. This is post-resurrection. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. Verse 23. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him. All you descendants of Israel. Again, this is too big a song to be applied just to David. Far too big to be a little historical song written by a king 3,000 years back. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The people will stand in awe of Jesus Christ. When they see, when they recognize, when they understand who he is, oh, not just Israel, all people will stand in awe of Jesus Christ. At the name of Jesus, Philippians 2.10, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Verse 24, For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him, but when He cried to Him for help, He heard. And that is speaking about Jesus on the cross, and it is speaking directly to you and to me tonight. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Man, when you're in hard times, He's not ignoring you. Ladies, when you're struggling, He is not just casting you off as a problem to be dealt with another day. He knows what's going on. He is intimately connected with your pain and your heartache. And He has a plan that He's working out. Did He ignore Jesus on the cross? No. Jesus went through what had to be gone through. But God the Father, actually the Bible tells us that there were three who were involved in the resurrection of Jesus. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Himself all resurrected Jesus. God's plan came about. He hadn't hidden His face from Him. When He cried to Him for help, He heard. And Jesus raised to life 
Verse 25, From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear Him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. You know, there's one reason that Jesus cried out more than any other, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus spoke these words so that you, so that I would never have to say the same thing. So that we wouldn't be in that place of saying, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Jesus took that on Himself. So that as we pray to the Lord, as we cry to the Lord, we can know we are heard. All the ends of the earth, verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. And all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. That word prosperous, you just might want to note in your margins, jot it down in your Bibles, all the prosperous, the word means fat ones. Do you know that in Ghana being plump is a good thing? We learned this. It is. Ghanaian women will, will walk up to someone... And we'll literally put their hands on your belly if, if you've got a few extra pounds that you're wanting to lose here in America. Not in Ghana. They'll, they'll put their hands on their belly and go, Oh, you look good. Yeah. You know what they're saying? They're saying, You're healthy. You're weighty. You're well fed. This is a good thing. And this is what he's talking about. All the fat ones of the earth will eat and worship. And I'll tell you what, in the millennial kingdom we can eat whatever we want and not worry about our weight. We'll sit around and go, yeah! Alright, it's not just in Ghana where I can look like this and feel good about myself. All the fat ones of the earth will eat and will worship. All those who go down to the dust, that is those who die, will bow before Him, even He who cannot keep His soul alive. Speaking obviously of, of our resurrection. Incredible. Verse 30. Posterity will serve Him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has performed it. And we've just done that. But I think there's even more. I believe the end of this psalm lands us at the outset, takes us from the cross, literally to the outset of the millennial kingdom. To the beginning of that golden age, true golden age of Israel and our rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. I believe a large part of our ruling and reigning in the kingdom, listen to this, will be the retelling of this story. Will be the declaring of this. They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born. That He has performed it. Now this is our role right now to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ which you've just read in Psalm 22. This is the gospel. To declare it, to retell it, to tell the old, old story again and again. And we will continue to tell the old, old story in the Millennial Kingdom. Why? Because there will be children born in the Millennial Kingdom. The Bible's clear about that. There will be people born into that kingdom who need to hear what happened. How did we get here? How did we end up in this place where Jesus is ruling and reigning out of Jerusalem? And what are those scars on His hands? Why, when he walks by, do I notice nail prints on his feet? What, what, what's with that? 
And part of our authority in the kingdom will, will be the telling of the old, old story and it will never get old. It doesn't for me. Is it tiresome to hear the story again for you? The story of the cross? What Jesus did? His resurrection? It's the greatest story that's ever been told. This is among the greatest of all biblical prophecies, Psalm 22, because as the angel spoke to John in the book of Revelation, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy exists for one primary reason, and that is to testify to Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and Messiah forever and ever. Praise the Lord. This is His testimony. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled and awed before You and before the cross. We find it breathtaking, Father, that You spoke these things with such specificity and clarity so long before they happened. But Father, we find it astounding that You allowed it to happen at all. It's amazing, Lord, because again it reminds us that You love us. That You would allow Your Son to go through this. Jesus, that You would take my sin and my sorrow, my failure on Your shoulders, and walk through what we have just detailed and seen. Also, that we might be saved. That we, rather than cry out forsaken, we can cry out saved. Rather than declaring our lostness, we declare our victory in You, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we this very night, we do so. We declare praise to Your name and our victory before the final triumph. We rest in Psalm 20, knowing we will praise from Psalm 21 because of what You did in Psalm 22. Praise You, Lord Jesus. We worship You now in Your precious name. Amen.